Max Verstappen, a couple more corners to go. This has been one of his more easier victories of the season. And for the second year running, it is victory here in Mexico City for Max Verstappen. And he is so far clear of the field, at least 15 seconds clear of Lewis Hamilton in second. Uh, by the time Hamilton reaches the line, Verstappen came into this race, the only driver to win here three times in the past. Well, he's now made it four victories. Verstappen wins the Mexico City Grand Prix, Hamilton second, and for the second year running, Sergio Perez can stand on the podium in his home race. Hello and welcome to the Undercut Podcast. We are back once again, and this time it is to review the Mexican Grand Prix. I am Team Albert Staley, and I am joined, as always, by my excellent co-host, Jesse Billington. How are you this evening? I am probably going to be suffering from an industrial bout of uh, indigestion because I've just absolutely scrammed dinner to get up here and record the podcast. But I, I am ready and excited to kick things off. And we're also joined by a very special guest, Freya Brosma. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. I'm at a delightful point of my, I don't know, eating schedule, let's call it that. So you've, you should get me with enough energy to make it through. <laughs> you do probably need that sometimes, depending on how far off base we have, Jesse and I can go with our discussion sometimes. So I'm glad you're in a happy mood for that. Find some yeah. chocolate to keep me going. <laughs> yeah, best to come into one of these fully fueled and ready to go the distance, because if Timo and I get going on something, we're gone for a good hour or so. I believe there's a, it. <laughs> there's a reason our Japanese Grand Prix review was longer than the race. <laughs> anyway, before oh, we good. jump immediately off the cliff of tangents, we're going to slide as smoothly as we can into our first section, which is, sorry, what the hell has happened? And first of all, Mexico has been renewed on the F1 calendar for as far as 2025. Perez could be gone by then, but Pato Award could potentially have joined McLaren, so there is still someone for the Mexicans to support. I'm going to throw it immediately over to you, Freya. What are your thoughts on Mexico? It's a fun track and presents a bit of a new, unique challenge, but would it be as much fun if it wasn't for the altitude? And aside from Checo's podium and Lewis getting a couple of championships there, is it as good as people say it is? Yeah. Do you know what? I think... It is an interesting race insofar as it throws out a new variable, which is quite unique to this location, which of course, as you mentioned, is the altitude. So we get things like Valtteri Bottas think, sitting in third at times during you know, qualifying and absolutely nailing it. And as to the question of what has happened, it's exactly it. You know, you get these quite unpredictable results and some odd performances, which we, you know, you don't, you don't see coming. And I'm someone who loves a mixed grid because I think that is something that makes for an interesting race. People have to work for their, their points and their positions. Um, and because of that, you know, unique element of um, this location, I think that it, always throws something you know even if it we don't get the weather um or someone's already won the championship or whatever you're always going to have that that element of it which makes it a little bit unpredictable so i i like that part of it for that reason it's obviously as we saw this year same as last year a great vibe as well and it's most overused word on the planet but it is exactly that it has an atmosphere which is um so special to mexico they're such so proud um of their their culture and all of the you know amazing things that come with that i loved the mariachi f1 theme that we got with this we, year we that was just <laughs> 
Oh, it was so great. Like I think I heard it for the first time at the end of qualifying live, like on the broadcast. And then when we were watching the actual race, hearing it um, in that kind of, you know, let's say more kind of controlled um, recorded version as well. I was like, oh my gosh, this is just even better. I love that. Um, I've got to say when Crofty was going through the grid for just prior to the race and you had it in the background there, I was like, I'm not a big Crofty fan anyway, but I was like, oh, just shut up. I want to listen to this. It's much more fun. I just want to listen to that. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 100%. Couldn't agree more. So I do like that, that side of it. And in a lot of ways with that, you can kind of go, well, how different is it really to somewhere like Monaco where you go, the racing is not necessarily that spectacular all the time but you have these little things that make it really special um you know for monaco it's the glitz and the glamour and the history um when you go to mexico we've got this unpredictability of the altitude amazing culture um amazing fans it's quite a spectacle and that's what makes it special here too and you do at times get good racing as well so is it the most exciting track from a racecraft potential um probably not but um, I think it's still got a lot to offer, far more so than some of the other newer tracks that we've seen, for example, Miami. I'd say the one thing I will play devil's advocate with you on there just for a second is with Monaco, at least it's a street circuit, whereas Mexico is more of a track track. And Formula E had a very exciting race there earlier this year. I don't know if you've got to saw that, but it's generally had a good history there as well. And I wonder is, and the same for Monaco actually, and I wonder is that, down to just the different categories and just capitalizing on different strengths and weaknesses? Or is that kind of a sign that F1 needs to look at making their cars smaller so that when you get to these tracks, you can have it more exciting because you've got the health and safety thing is fine in Formula E, but again, different speeds and a whole bunch of other variables. So it's when mm. you say you have great vibes, but how much does that doesn't translate to on track necessarily? And that's the bit that totally as racing fans you are there for, as cool as everything yeah. else is. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And yeah, I suppose my, my point in comparing it to a Monaco is that, yeah, okay, you've got the street circuit, which can make qualifying really exciting. But on the Sunday, you know, I find it pretty hard to argue that that's an exciting racetrack for a Sunday race. It gets um, trickier every year to argue that in, one. <laughs> in, exactly. If there's people sitting in seventh, they're going, cool, I'll start in seventh, I'll finish in seventh as long as nobody crashes. Um, so that's a conversation that we have about Monaco all the time in terms of going, you know, how do you keep this race interesting? Do you make it a mandatory two-stop, like just let strategy play its course or whatever it might be? But the point being, we do have these tracks. We have to go, well, what makes it special? And sometimes it is going to be epic overtaking opportunities and what can what can possibly be achieved on track and for others it's going to be around you know track location and I think it's fine for to have some of both on a racing calendar and with the what feels like 850 races that we'll have on the calendar next year um I think it's fine to have a couple of (laughs) we'll have some of both you know you'll have some where we know we're not there for the best racing in the world but it is. It still holds a place in the calendar for its own reasons. Um, but as long as you have some of both, it's when you kind of get a few of those back to back, and you're going, okay, mm-hmm. all right, we haven't, we actually haven't had a great race for a couple of weeks now, or a couple of races now, um, and it's where you wanted to go. You want to go to somewhere like Monza, where you might get something more exciting happening. But um, I just think you know, when it comes to the, the, the race calendar, variety of races, variety of locations, um, I would like to see them pair it back to kind of 18 races or so, so that each race mm. means a bit more. Um, but but as long as, you know, we have that variability in different track styles um, and locations, I think it's a good thing. 
No, definitely. I'd have to agree with you on that one. And throwing it over to you then, Jesse, on some slightly more positive news, I guess. The stewards actually made a good decision. Um, they made a decision that's right by the book, at least. Um, obviously, this refers to the stewards and the FIA reinstating Alonso's P7 from the Grand Prix in Texas the week prior. And this actually came about from Alpine protesting Alonso's 30-second uh, penalty that was applied. But they weren't technically protesting the penalty that was applied. They were protesting Hass's um, protest against Alonso not having the meatball flag shown. And this is because Hass were like, well, it seems like every race you're showing Kevin Magnuson the meatball flag for something that's deemed not dangerous. And we saw several cars running around in a similar state to Kevin's had been in places like Canada and Baku, where he'd been given the black and orange flag for unsafe car pit to fix. And we should have seen that with Alonso with his broken wing mirror. We didn't. Has protested this. Race direct race officials went, all right, we'll give him a 30-second penalty. So he sort of tumbled down the order post-race. And Alpine went, whoa, 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 whoa. Has fine with what you're doing. That makes perfect sense. Problem is you did it after the cutoff time for making that protest. And we're not happy about that bit. So it was really a very sort of petty it's thing to go off as well to do it after the deadline. It, it was a very Haas thing to do it late and sort of a bit slapdash. Then it was very Alpine to sort of come at them for the minutiae of what they'd done and go, we're fine with you trying to get us black and orange flagged after the race. We're fine with that because, yeah, that car should have been sort of gaffer tape back together better. But we are going to have a go at you for doing that half an hour after the closing time for getting your protest in. <laughs> so that's where it came from. And basically Alonso and Alpine said they wanted to ensure the FIA follow the laws they've laid down and do it properly. So they they said, Hass, we're fine with what you've said. Problem is you said it at 30 minutes too late. So um, yeah, there we go. And also the fact that Alonso's car went into Park Ferme after the race. And they said the car was perfectly fine in Park Ferme. They're like, yeah, it's a bit broken. It's missing bits, but we can just sort of chuck them back into the cockpit while it weighs the same Bob's your uncle. And it, it was just this fact that Haas were half an hour too slow doing what they were legally allowed well, to do. Well, that's, that's why I'm disappointed in Alonso in a way, because you saw the brilliant car control for him. And you think, if he can do that on two wheels, why did he not just reach out the side of the car and just grab the mirror as he was flying <laughs> off? you think he'd have the perfect reaction to that. Just the reaction to just... Or just sort of do what Charles Leclerc did going through Japan 2019, was it? Where he was literally just sort of clinging on to a wobbly mm. and going through... I knew I'd seen that somewhere before. I was thinking of something. Yeah. And just sort of just, just tag onto it or sort of snap it off and put it in between your legs or something until the end of the race. I reckon that would have been a far smarter move. Or literally when you come in for a tire pit stop, just have an engineer just go... Put it in the garage for later. Because that running without it is perfectly fine if it's come off in a legitimate crash. It's not deemed as like weird weight-saving measures. But as long as it then gets included in the car's weight at the end, it's fine. So it's yeah, it was a weird one, but it's good to see the FI have gone, okay, yeah, we should probably follow the rules we've laid down because we don't seem to be doing that very well this season. So they've at least started doing that properly, which sort of leads nicely into the FIA following even more of their own rules with the cost cap and the double yeah. breaches. Which is Freya's favourite topic if you listen to any of Let's <laughs> Because it's opposites day. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, the easy part of it is Aston Martin getting fined 450k for a procedural breach, which is essentially them just, again, kind of doing an Aston Martin and not filling in the correct paperwork, which does kind of 
seem appropriate for that team at the moment. Um, probably won't make a lot of difference to them. It's pocket money for Lance with how much he gets paid by his dad every year anyway. So grand scheme things, they'll just fire whoever made that call and replace them with someone who can fill in the correct paperwork. And then you've you've written a bunch of nice notes here, Jesse, but I don't think it's going to have a lot of effect on them for 2023, to be honest. I mean, I'll rattle through the notes because I think they're kind of valid enough, but it, it's a, it partly means the FIO taking a firm stand with following the cost cap and saying even if it's a procedural breach we're not letting you off it's like saying oh, i did my homework i just forgot to bring it with me like nope you're getting a penalty note for that so it's good to see the fi actually taking it seriously and doing something about it and i do say i don't know how much it's going to impact aston martin going into 2023 they are currently pissing huge amounts of money seemingly into the wind at the moment with very little to show for it especially with a P1415 result in Mexico, especially coming off the back of a fairly good Austin. It's weird that they've sort of tumbled back quite as far as they have with this one. And perhaps this will call on them to restructure their finances more appropriately. We might not see the results of this impact in 2023, but 2024, they could be back to running a tight ship akin to what we saw. Honest, they could probably just not spend 450k on Lance's car and no one would notice. They could just probably not pay Lance and just sort of occasionally buy him a chocolate bar. If they, bar do, if they used jumper. the 10 million they paid Lance and put an overspent on that one, it'd probably be worth breaking the rules for in the first place. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's an odd one, but it, it does show that the FI are taking the cost cap thing seriously. And I think that's mirrored in the way they've treated Red Bull. I think. I, mean, I don't want to hear your opinions. Be- I'm going to be really nice and ask our guest on this one because Red Bull <laughs> have been fined 7 million. Um, and their wind tunnel time has been reduced by a further 10% for next season after the minor cost cap. No official word on what they've spent on, and Horner doesn't seem particularly worried about the impacts of any of this going into next season from what he was saying going into the weekend. And just before I get your thoughts on it, we've got, by winning the Constructors Championship, they have less wind tunnel time to begin with, um, so 15% less in second place half and 20% less in third place and so on. Um and the wind tunnel could play a long game with everyone on the grid. So whilst we might not see anything particularly next year, depending on how big the gains other teams can make, it might be okay to 24 and 25, we'll see it. But that's all if buts and maybes. So my question generally then is, Freya, fair, not fair? And why? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think on this whole situation that's Aston Martin and Red Bull inclusive, the FIA don't have a choice but to come down fairly hard and transparently in terms of the, um, you know, what those fines are and what the the issues were and all of those things because there have been so many questions um, of them over the last year, not stemming from Abu Dhabi but generally speaking, when it comes to Formula One and then FIA and that relationship, there are so many questions. And when it comes down to their integrity as um, a sporting authority, they have to come down clearly on this. They couldn't be a kind of, you know, three strikes and you're out from a procedural breach kind of thing. There has to be a clear line in the sand where if you can't follow these processes or steps, um, you know, according to what we've we've prescribed or issues, then there will be a penalty for that. And we will try to make sure that that is proportionate to the mistake or the error that has been made, which is why the $7 million fine is not greater in that if you look at the, um, 
the misspend from Red Bull, which they are arguing comes down to an interpretation of the rules, which they're always going to argue. They might have accepted. I did, I did laugh at that when I read it. It was just kind of, you, we yeah. agree that Look, we broke the rules, but we're not admitting we broke the rules. It's like, well, you're well, we're not admitting we, we broke the rules. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're agreeing that there was a breach, but we don't think it was quite our fault. And they, so, and but they're always going to say that, right? They can't, yeah. he, Christian Horner is not capable of coming out and saying, yeah, we stuffed up. Um, but that's why I think that $7 million fine is not greater because this is classified as a minor breach. So there has to be some sort of financial penalty. But as Toto Wolf said, you know, it has to be significant enough that it motivates people not to go through these minor, you know, minor breaches again in the future because, you know. A, well, he was happily saying a couple, we'll a couple understand of, if we can get away with it like this if it's well, such a small exactly. thing. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing is, and that brings me to the wind tunnel time, which is something that Red Bull are going to care a lot more about than the $7 million. And so will every other team who's watching what happens here. So I don't think it's a question of kind of fairness as much as the what what the FIA had to deliver in this circumstance in order to, for people to take their rules seriously, which is something that is proportionate to the size of the um, the breach, so to speak, and mm. um, and something that's actually going to affect them on track because at the end of the day, that's all they care about. You know, it's not coming out of their cost cap, so they don't care about that. Um, it's a would it be better if it did come out of their cost cap? Do you think, or would um, that be too far considering it's a minor breach? Because that was the only thing I was debating in my head whether I wanted it to be because seven million for Red Bull as a whole seems again like large drop pocket money. So pocket what, change, does that really right. matter to them? Would they just be happily to spend it again on wings or whatever? <laughs> well, exactly. I think I think different teams would have different answers to this in that Huss would say we can't come out of our cost cap because we don't have that. We just don't have the money. Whereas Red Bull will probably say, you know, whatever, they'll figure it out in a different way. Um, I, I I think it's fine that it doesn't come out of their cost cap um, because you've got that 10% wind tunnel deduction as well. If this was just a financial um, uh, kind of, yeah, penalty and there was no wind tunnel time, then I would say, oh, that this is not a blip on their radar. Yeah. Um, if it came out of the cost cap, then it would be. So I don't think it's, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a problem that it doesn't because it's also matched with that with that wind tunnel um, time penalty, which is what they're going to care about because that is something that's going to potentially cost them tenths over the next couple of years. And it wouldn't have been practical for them to try and make some sort of retrospective sporting penalty here. Um, I think it would have been very, very hard for them to argue that, present that in a logical way, have people accept it. You'd be going through this process for a long time. There's no way that Red Bull would have accepted the breach if that was going to be the penalty for it. it. (laughs) Well, exactly. But I think that's, I think, I I think kind of, you know, everything on the table that it's probably a, a solid outcome. It's a reasonable outcome and it's pretty proportionate to the error that was made. And as much as they might say, look, this was our interpretation, this, that, and the other. Okay, fine. But the nine of the 10 teams got it right and you didn't. So, you know, odds are this was in fact your mistake because every single other team is not being accused or investigated for the same thing. The thing, the part which I just don't get about any of this is, you know, a Red Bull not doing audits along the way to make sure that this stuff is being reported accurately. Like where, 
how has it taken until now for this to be to, for this to surface? Um, I think more so than a, you know, looking at how they spend their money, they need to look at how they're recording how they spend their money and how they're auditing that. Especially That's in the first the, year of new regulations where you know that there is potential for you know stuff to go wrong. That you this think is you'd be extra oh, 100%. careful. 100%. Everyone knew they were going to be keeping an eye on spending last year. So, um, yeah, I think it's more of a process question for Red Bull in terms of going, okay, we didn't get this right and we need to make sure it doesn't happen again. I think we should, unless you've got something to say there, Jesse. Well, a little bit to chuck in on it. So, of course, uh, as you work your way down the constructor standings, you lose uh, 5% of the previous, of the team before you use wind tunnel time. So obviously if you took 100% with Williams, then sort of work your way backwards from there, eventually you get to Red Bull having something like um, 50% of the wind tunnel time. I think it works out give too. Red Bull's wind tunnel time that they lose to Williams to help them out a bit because we need to see them back <laughs> the top anyway. That's, That's a great idea. Yeah. I love that. And then you have obviously the further 10% dumped on top of it by there. But the 7 million is interesting because the amount Red Bull actually claim they've overspent by is somewhere in the region of £800,000. So this is roughly around 10 times the amount they overspend by, which that's a sort of interesting potential pattern that it could be sort of relative to. Again, it depends how much that the the procedural breach that led to Aston Martin's overspend was. If that could, if they could fault those down to a procedural breach that cost them around fifty thousand dollars, then you could see potentially this sort of idea of whatever your cock up is, we're just going to multiply that by ten and charge you for that, and then pour it into the FIA charities. Because one of the interesting things I did find out across the weekend was you wonder where this seven million that Red Bull are going to give the FIA is going to go to, and it's because the FIA is set up as a not-for-profit organization. So once they've taken out everything that goes into making Formula One, Formula Two, Formula Three, and whatever their version of W Series will happen, plus any other FIA supported motorsports, that rest of that money then goes into their charity arms, which is their things like supporting grassroots motorsports, supporting sort of long reach uh, junior fields and equally supporting their sort of safer motorsport stuff we saw last year they were giving out like free 20 helmets. million then give back to the kids <laughs> so yeah it'd be nice to, it's obvious that's where the money goes to and again we had this with when Max mm. Verstappen touched Hamilton's wing after Brazil last year and Max joked oh I bet they're going to have a nice dinner off of that one but it was interesting to actually finally find out what happens to that money is simply a case of when they get to the end of the year and they say right we've paid all of our people we've covered our sort of all of our bills We've got a huge amount of money left over. Thanks, Red Bull. Here we go, Junior Series. Get some more people from diverse backgrounds, from uh, sort of different sort of areas coming into the sports and give them safe helmets and give local groups safer roads and stuff. And I'm thinking that's nice, all nice and stuff. So it's good to see that this is going to have a positive impact down the line outside the sport. And the only thing I'll say on that one is, is that... Seven million, then, or however, if they had other money from throughout the year as well, and they're using it to fund FIA backed championships, then uh, why not help W Series out the other week? Because it wasn't FIA backed, it wasn't part of FIA, and it'd been run as an independent venture. Yeah, I mentioned this several times. Show, yeah, but it's fitted under charity and doing a good thing, then, and not being annoying. It would do, but again, you don't see Oxfam donating to the British Red Cross or or vice versa. You you stick in your lane, and I think that because equally at the same time, it is a business. I'm just still salty. But you You're still salty. It's, <laughs> I'm not denying your fairness for being salty, but the fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, it's a business, and the FIA are going, now we've got our own stuff to deal with. Sorry, your one didn't work out. We're just going to photocopy your stuff, though, and make a few amendments. So uh, it, Bernie would have chucked them the money. <laughs> Bernie would have spent it funding Putin's side of the Ukraine war. Don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, anyway. moving on from before I suddenly have a small red laser dot on my forehead. Um, Audi taking over Sauber for 2026. Who wants yeah, to on that one? Which not that surprising. It's about all I've got to say there. That's kind of again almost yeah. kept secret since George Russell joining Mercedes last year. And like you said, it's the new rules for 26 doing what they should be doing and attracting new people. Again, it's a little bit of a shame for me that it's not Audi as a separate entity because I just want more teams on the grid because that'd be more fun. But take what we can get and it'll be interesting to see if that can help Alfa Romeo, Salba, whatever the hell they are at this point and will be by that point because I don't think, given how good they've been this year, that uh, they're going to get up to the front anytime soon before that. Well, I mean, it raises two interesting questions is the 2026 rules were designed to bring in new teams. All it's done is just bring in someone to make power units for Salba. So it's not really brought in a new team. If anything, all it's done is just sort of half-heartedly achieve what it was supposed to. And at the same time, Audi aren't making road car engine, any new road car engines from 2023, 2024. They're stopping building new stuff there and just focusing on electricals. So if you're Salba sitting there going, wait, hang on, you're not making ICE units anymore. And you're going to try and make a 1,000 horsepower, 1.6 litre V6. Just off the top of your head with no road backing. And Audi's going, yeah, it'll be fine. You're sort of going, I have my doubts. Because they, Audi's basically shutting down that side of things and just going fully into the fully electric side of things, basically taking the electric side of the Volkswagen and Porsche group and just folding that into itself. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works. I'm sceptical it's going to be any good, is the long and short of it. It's going to be a nice livery, don't get me wrong. Silver and red is going to look cool as anything. I might buy a cap because I don't have enough of those already. But yeah, I'm just not hyped for it. I, I wouldn't buy a cap if I were you, given the success that the drivers you buy caps for happen afterwards. Lando <laughs> uh, Norris didn't have a particularly good weekend. Charles Leclerc, not a good one. Williams, no points. And Alfa Romeo. Alfa Romeo scored a point, so there we go. But it wasn't for Antonio Giovinazzi. So, are you excited to see Audi in F1, Freya? Um. Uh. Yeah. Yes and no. I think like you'd ride. No, no. Say it like you need it. it. Yeah. Well, it's it's like you said. It's not a whole new team, right? But at the same time, I do think this is what Sauber needs. Like, I just don't think that what they have at the moment is working for them. I don't think it's going to be something that's going to get them results anytime soon. Um, it just doesn't feel like they're in it wholeheartedly. Um, I think Sauber is, um, but it doesn't feel like they've got the rest of um, that kind of process and system and relationships working for them in the way that it needs to. Um, I think it was, yeah, it's probably a shame to see that they're not um, a team in and of themselves, but this is their way into the sport. And if they, you know, then want to grow there, then you know, that, that's a good way in. But um, it's not a couple of years away. I think um, we've got so much to get through between now and then that I tend not to get that excited about it necessarily. You know, we'll see what happens when, when it happens. Um, but I think more what's actually potentially more interesting is that they had discussions with with Williams and McLaren and those didn't mm. come through when it comes to being the power unit um, supplier for them, which kind of surprises me a little bit. You know, if we look at McLaren's results, if we look at Williams' results, um, are they not interested in making a change? Um, obviously, there's a lot to consider there, but um, I would have thought that actually an Audi-McLaren um, combination could have been really interesting given that quite frankly what they've got at the moment is 
not has not got the pace that um, anyone would have been hoping for. You know, is that down to the power unit? I don't know. Very likely to be a combination of things. Um, but the fact that they've ended up where they where they have is is an interesting one. But we'll see what happens in twenty twenty six and see how many times I say Saudi instead. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Instead yeah, of that, was, that was a particularly amusing part of your episode the other day, I have to oh say. Oh, my goodness. The worst thing about that was that I was writing notes for the podcast and I wrote it out like four or five times. And so it was just a self-fulfilling prophecy in the end that it would eventually happen. So, uh, yeah, that's... I'm just glad I wasn't... I can't wait for Saudi to race in Saudi. So I know I would have done. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. It's a while away yet. Talking about 2026, though, we could have some of the drivers that were featuring in FP1 still around by then and potentially joining Audi, Sauber or Audi, Alfa, whatever it's going to be called, Saudi. We're going to call it Saudi. It's going to be easier for me to remember that now. Yeah. That's going to be more than much thanks to Freya now. Um, so Liam Lawson was back in the car, driving for Alfa Tauri, Nick De Vries for Mercedes, which completely poo-pooed pretty much everything Jesse and I said on our preview episode about Mercedes, probably not letting him in there because he's going to Alfa Tauri and then them just being nice and saying, go on, go forward, must spin. Um, Pietro Fittibaldi was then for Haas, Logan Sargent backing for Williams, which was amusing for a reason I'll say in a moment, and Jack Doohan driving for Alpine in FP1 because why would they let in Oscar Piastri after having such good relations with him recently? Um, measuring up against the people that they were replace oh no not who was who was in the session with them sergeant was 1.3 seconds off latifi lawson 2.5 off gasly doing 3.7 against alonso which when you think about the first time is not awful for him de Vries, 3.7 against lewis and fittipaldi 4.8 against schumacher and correct me if i am wrong jesse but the points for Sergeant for his super license, he didn't get them because of the two red flags meant he got 96% of the laps he needed to in that session and not famously 100%, which is what you need. So big waste of time. Big waste of time. I think they can chuck him in like another FP1 drive later in the season, I think, or he really needs to pull his socks up for the FP2 finale in Abu Dhabi. But either way, yeah, it's it's the ice is getting very thin for Logan Sargent if he wants to be in that Williams next season. Um, he did the best out of all the FP1 drivers against their rivals, although at the same time, 1.3 seconds shy of Latifi is not a glowing indictment, I'd say. He is the GOAT, though. He is Gotifi, but at the same time, sort of rough. Fittipaldi was the biggest shocker given how much development work he's done with Haas and to then come out nearly five seconds adrift of Mick Schumacher. Admittedly, he didn't have brilliant running either. He had it's a good for Schumacher, time. though, if he wants to keep that seat out of Fittipaldi's hands for next year. Yeah, at least he knows he's not competing against Fittipaldi for that seat. He's just got to hope that Nico Hulkenberg hasn't got a really good PowerPoint presentation lined up. <laughs> um, Duan, I think, is the one outlier from this group because he's not done an FP1 session for any of the major teams, and he's stepping into a car that's unlike anything he's ever driven at a circuit. Where and he probably wasn't expecting team. to get in there this year either, Piastri was like at the beginning of the year and we didn't know that was all going to happen it seemed very last minute and at some point at some point the Alpine officers sort of went hang on have we done an FP1 session this season and they've gone no and then someone's gone merde we must sort this out and then someone sort of got on the phone to do it and sorted it and basically said can you get to Mexico for this weekend and he's gone don't see why not and they've flown him out and I mean he's done all right 3.716 can we seconds. just note for a he did an Australian accent whilst you're on the podcast I was about to say nice nice go you could have <laughs> handballed that one to me but the greatest thing to come from um, doing 
doing his pre-practice was actually the interview with Mick, I oh, think, on yeah. Sunday where they went around <laughs> and said, oh, you know, how did he go? He goes, oh, yeah, kept the pain on, so that's good. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. It's, this it, is why we love Australians on the grid. <laughs> Mick Doohan is absolute legend, especially because at one point Sky simply labelled him as Jack Doohan's dad, and you're sort of going, dad, uh, yeah. dad, 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 dad. Uh, whoa, 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 hang on. Do you not know of MotoGP, my friend? Have you not heard of the 500cc class? And they're going, no. So going, yeah, great. Um, but yeah. So fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. And yeah, brought a bit of character to him. I think Martin also ambushed him on the grid during his grid walk again, which was... For a very short and sweet interview. Had a yeah. good... I think he had a longer interview with that random bird he bumped into and was accidentally trying to rob her of her handbag with his microphone lead, which was kind of funny. Anyway, I mean, we nearly wrapped up the news, although the one interesting point I will raise quickly, um, two of them are fairly technical points, yada yada, fairly obvious. One of them is Gasly is just two points from a race ban and the earliest point expires in May next year. So of the current grid, only Lewis and Carlos don't have points, but the Gasly thing is interesting because it means Aralpine just going to say to him, could you just like torpedo into Norris, get two more points, serve a race ban in Abu Dhabi, and then you're clean when you arrive with us. Otherwise, he's sort of coming into Alpine, a car that he won't have driven with a setup he won't be used to. I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up serving a race ban within the first five or six races at Alpine if he doesn't clear his plate now. It It would be kind of the cherry on top of the Alpine cake with what they've given themselves this year, really, wouldn't it? It would be, but at the same time, I'd love to see like... Pierre Gasly sort of going tactical torpedo, taking out Norris, and so Ocon and Alonso can get a good haul of points in the final two races or something. That's where that's when Ricardo wins the race, though, and doesn't matter. <laughs> don't don't float that boat because now <laughs> so you said I, I still believe <laughs> it's just an interesting point. Just like he sort of basically packs up at the end of Brazil having torpedoed Norris, takes his bunch of flowers, a picture of Yuki's ass, gets on a plane and goes home because he knows that he's got a race ban for Abu Dhabi and then he's clear for the next season. I think it'd just be funny. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't think of a natural segue into winners and spinners. So I'm just going to well, go no, into... No, 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 no. We've got Timo's oh, fun no. fact first. Oh, my fun fact, yes. Mexico was somehow Charles Leclerc's 100th Grand Prix, which I'm not entirely sure how he's got to 100 that quickly. It, does seem like he's only been here five minutes, but Starting maybe, I think it probably feels longer for Charles at the same time, considering how long he's already been at Ferrari. Yeah, one season at Alfa Romeo and then Ferrari since then. Yeah, so 18, uh, 19, 20, 21, 22. There's five years of about 20 races apiece is 100. I know, but I'm still used to there only being 18 races in a season. Like Freya was saying earlier, it's kind of the optimum amount. We're not expecting it to be keep expanding to 450 races. So it kind of it threw me when I saw that. Get with the times, Grandad. Two seasons from now, you're going to be able to get to 100 races in two seasons. <laughs> That's yeah, free, free just I'm tired that. thinking. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired just thinking about it. I'm really tired just thinking about it. And I, I know it would not. It's a whole other topic, but that many races in a season as we're up to, you know, was it 24 for next year? I was listening to an interview um, with Lucy. Now, goodness, I'm not going to remember her last name. Um, she works for um, Alpine. Well, she's actually with Castrol um, doing their, um, she's a trackside fuel technologist. Anyway, she was saying that she's she currently goes to every single race except for about three where she has stand-ins who come and support her and kind of take over for a couple of races. But they are by all, I'm sure they're excellent as well, but they all, for all intents and purposes, are the B team. 
you know, and she makes, she talks about the quantity of races per season and that next year with even more uh, races, they will now be coming in and doing even more of those. So it's going to be really interesting with, as we increase the races per season, how teams actually structure themselves in order to help people have some sort of, I don't want to even joke in saying work-life balance, but be (laughs) able to you know, be at home occasionally, let's put it that way. Lucy Taylor, sorry, that's I'm thinking of. Um, and she was saying, you know, the, this group of um, our kind of you know, backups will have to take off more more races next year, which means that you're going to have the B team at more races. And so I just think that's interesting because that's just one role that it's going to affect and think about all the other roles in a team that makes the weekend come together. Um it's really interesting. And like you said, they'll all be hitting their 400th anniversaries and 450 anniversaries and course of course of like two years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the argument say, this, there this guy is, is 21. How has he had a, done 150 races? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the argument there is to simply not have a B team. You have a team one and a team two. You don't have a slightly mm. subpart part team that you just occasionally have to ship off because everyone else is falling asleep at their desks. But then of course you've got a factor in essentially running double the staff under the same budget cap just yep. so you don't have people literally falling asleep on the comms desk, just sort of falling asleep on the pit button and just sort of lots yeah. comes in, just like, <laughs> okay, no, Brad's falling asleep because it, it's going to happen. It, and that's when you also, in motorsport, you're going to start to get things like dangerous mistakes creep in when you don't have that downtime, especially with pit crew members, with drivers. If you're pushing them to an extraordinary limit, and then asking them to perform to that level. You're getting pit crews just about managing to do the sub-two-second pit stop. It's physically harsh, especially in conditions like sort of the Middle East in Singapore. And then you ask people to do that every weekend with very little respite, a lot of traveling, which just isn't great for respite anyway. You're going to see mistakes. And while that would, to an extent, spice up the racing, I don't know if I want that at the risk of putting pit crews in the way of it's danger. not the way that you want to spice yeah. up the racing you want it no. to be just no and I think, level playing field yeah and, and like you said you go you know there's an alternative there in terms of having you know, two equally experienced capable teams who whether they take it in turns or whatever for each weekend that's going to be huge implications for your cost but the consistency is probably going to start being questioned as well in terms of having people subbing in and out even if it's whole teams and also what you're learning I know a lot of it is in data as opposed to lived experience but at the same time what you're learning from one weekend to the other and then taking with you um I think you start compromising on on what you're able to to gain in consistent weekends um through that as well but someone like Lucy was saying you know a, a um a F1 weekend kind of from the Tuesday to the Sunday is something like an 80-hour week already. So we now you have to fit in 20-odd of those and squeeze in an extra couple next year. Um, and then, you know, there's not the downtime over Christmas and kind of January they're off cleaning all of the products and doing maintenance on all of their testing equipment and everything else that's not meant to be getting packed up and shipped away and across country. It's meant to be stable in a nice clean um, lab and, you know, not being put into containers and everything else. I've got to go make sure all of that works. So it's not as though there's downtime all of a sudden. Um, they might take two weeks off over Christmas and then they're, they're back on it, making sure everything's ready for the following season. So my point in bringing that up is just that you know we obviously we started talking about Leclerc somehow having already hit 100 um races but yeah like you said that that's going to be happening more and more for really young and new drivers and 
you know, we're talking about him having done, you know, five seasons. Lucy's done 14. So <laughs> she must be tired. <laughs> yeah. So moving on from Timo's fun fact, we'll dive into our winners and spinners. And Timo, I'll throw this one to you first because it's a, it's a fairly obvious one, isn't it, with you, really, for winners? Yes, it is. He says consult his notes quickly to check who he has. You'd forgotten. Very Bottas is my... Yes, I, I had the notes and I minimised it briefly, thinking I'd remember who it was, but I forgot. After having two fun facts in a row about Bottas not scoring points for donkey's years, we came through third time lucky. He came home in 10th place, scored a single championship point, but it counts. And really, even if he hadn't, I would have probably still given him the winner just because of his donkey performance on Saturday. It, we touched on this previously I think or possibly later on depending on how Jesse has edited this podcast he's going to edit around this now um, but qualifying just seemed to be in a league of his own essentially for midfield and kind of comfortably beating McLaren and Alpine and just kind of seemed to be reminiscent of what we were expecting from him at the very start of the season when he was doing pretty well for himself and to be honest it's even more impressive that he's still in 10th place overall in the championship there's quite a big gap to ninth place now, and I don't think he's going to climb over that. But to have such a long time without any points and then to get one, at least as a starting block for the last two races that are still to come, you get a win in my book. And again, from a Grand Prix that was not particularly exciting, I feel like he deserves a shout out there. Definitely deserves the shout out for it. And again, it wouldn't have been an easy drive. We know the Ferrari power unit wasn't been particularly on form. I think I mentioned this either before or after this point. I can't remember how I'm editing this. But the fact of the matter is that the Ferrari power unit is, it hasn't been at its strong point at, uh, in Mexico. And I think I've, I've after this actually that I, I lay into some details because of the unique way this podcast is produced. Um, but yeah, he was fighting a power unit that wasn't brilliant. And I think he had an aero package that was just about there. But Ellie May, you've got a point on Bottas. Well, no, it was more on it was more on Ferrari with their loss of power. Mm. But go on. I wouldn't say their woes were just because of their capacity; like they couldn't run full capacity, and that the like it wasn't just that their straight line speed was slow. It was as well they just did not have the right setup in terms of balance because they were just the car wouldn't turn, and it was just sliding everywhere so I think it was just terrible all around for Ferrari really they should have done what that NASCAR car did in terms of overtaking yes they should have gone for NASCAR tryouts and basically just sort of run it around the wall like some sort of particle accelerator absolutely fantastic move move made my morning when I saw that on TikTok this morning I was like no way did that work. And you watch it and you think this guy's going in fast forward. I'll try and find a way of including a link or a tag to it or something, or I'll share it on the Undercut Podcast Twitter. Can't remember which driver was doing it. It's in the basically the qualifyings for the, the a big race coming up. And this guy just basically hooks it against the wall, just mats his foot and doesn't have to worry about steering and just holds on for dear life. And he makes up from 10th to P5 in like two turns at a very tight circuit. Anyway, NASCAR stuff aside... Yeah, Bottas was your winner for this weekend, and I'd say rightly deserved. What about yourself, though, Jesse? You got a winner? I've I've got a winner, and I'm going to say Hamilton because again, capitalizing on a pretty strong race, the Mercedes is coming onto form. He had a pretty solid drive. Again, he was almost fighting strategy this time around as well, which is quite a strange thing to see from Mercedes. He was on tires that he really didn't want to be on that really weren't going to see him through. Well, we're going to see him 
through to the end, but without even coming onto form or having any grip to them at all. So he was he was really battling in a long way, but was able to keep a pretty good gap to Perez behind. Wasn't able to hold the torch to Verstappen, which is pretty obvious, but at the end of the day, he had a good drive and earned a decent amount of points off of it. And it has now seen him overtake Carlos Sainz in the standings. Which seemed kind of almost not impossible, but very unlikely if just a few races ago. And again, to back up what he made, just saying just now, they just seem to be getting even more wrong than normal, which you didn't think that was possible, but somehow they managed. Yeah, Ferrari taking a bit of a step backwards has really helped Mercedes there creep into, I think, an LP4 and P5 in the stand in the driver's standing, so not too shabby. He's coming for George now. Mm, wait and see. Speaking of George, George Russell, Roberts, uh, yeah, speaking of George Russell, we'll swap over to his number one fan, Ellie Mae Taylor. Who's your winner for the weekend? No one. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a dull race that you don't have one. No. Nope. Right, there you are. That, that's quite easy. And uh, that's easy enough to work with, keeps the runtime down. Uh, we'll swap over to Freya and your winner. Is it to me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, sorry. So my my winner for Mexican Grand Prix, Mexican Grand Prix is the same as 24% of viewers who voted for driver of the day, which is Daniel Ricardo. Um, and I know I have to say it because I'm Australian and everything else, but I don't have to say that um, because he, well, I think there's plenty of other weekends where he hasn't been. But this weekend he absolutely was. And it was interesting watching his race. I think early on he couldn't quite get the grip to kind of pull moves on Joe as early as it kind of looked like he wanted to, but he had the straight line speed once he got DRS and made that happen. I was so pleased to see them putting the softs on DR because there's so many weekends that you'll see in particular the two McLaren cars kind of doing the same strategy and just go, oh, my goodness, like he's, you're not winning a championship here. You're not even you know, second or third in, in driver's championship, you might get, you know, something reasonable with constructors. Well if, risk it. But what's to lose exactly. Mm. And try just do something different. And so after um, uh, Norris pitted and Daniel saying that, no, I'm feeling really good on mediums. I was so glad to see him go on softs because I just thought that I was going to do the same thing again. Like I said, what have you got to lose at this point in the season, especially, um, especially I think him. in terms Oh, exactly. For him particularly, what have you got to lose? And it's good, good, I don't want to say practice because it's not practice, it's the race, but um, it's good experience for his team and everything else. We're kind of going, let's try something different, see how we respond to that um, and and kind of go about things in a different way. You, have, you, you learn a lot from that process too. So I was really glad to to see that happen and not just replicate um, Lando's strategy. Um, and they they managed to find out kind of way of doing it as well, kind of eating Yuki yeah. out of the scenery, and then okay, you got a penalty, so, but then yeah, you're already going to argue with me there. <laughs> well, I you know it was interesting listening to his post race interview, and I that's kind of what I thought at the time. I was like, oh, I can see where they're saying that maybe he was a bit. Um, overzealous in terms of thinking like seeing how much space he had on the inside there but at the same time I don't think it was a hundred percent 
his fault. I think he probably thought he was going to have more grip than he did, to be honest, going into um, going into that corner. Um, and it didn't stick quite as tightly as he thought it was going to. But he doesn't miss the apex. And that's the thing is as he, as he comes out, that's right where he is. And it's just two into one, right? And it's so I think a five-second penalty would have been more appropriate. I think we talk about, you know, proportionate mm. um, penalties, Um when it comes to things that get handed out. And I think five would have been more proportionate. 10 second penalties when you see other times that have been applied are considerably more kind of clear cut and serious as well. Um, I mean, not that it made any difference been. for him though, because he just... Because he's Daniel Ricciardo, so he just goes and faster. Just went for it. And it built, <laughs> I thought it was impressive enough getting that far off the grid and then getting a 10 second plus lead over Ocon. I thought, wow, where's he been the last couple of weeks? Yeah, Why are we not um, having this more? It's brilliant to see that. So It was fantastic to see. Um, and... Yeah, at first I kind of I was a bit annoyed because we didn't get to see on the broadcast the move on Norris, but then afterwards we kind of found out that that was yeah. that was actually team orders um, because he just had so much more pace, which probably confused it Norris. Me, it? I'm sure it did. Wait a second, again, opposites <laughs> day. <laughs> Things get very confusing, but I um, you know, at the end of the day, I just say, look, if that race isn't evidence that when he's got the machinery behind him, the strategy. That is right. That guy is still flying. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know there's plenty of people out there saying, oh, he's washed, he's done everything else. No, I'm sorry. The the facts actually don't tell you that. And if you look at a race weekend like this weekend, when it all lines up for him, he's got the same potential as everybody else, if not more, on the grid when it comes to actually putting his car where it needs to be. He's got the ability to do the overtakes, but he doesn't have the straight line speed on half the other cars. And you can tell still, even in a race like that, I don't think he's got trust in that car because you're kind of going into corners and you can he just doesn't trust it. Like he backs out of it. I think that you saw that with Joe, of it. He, you feel like if he was in yep. a different car, he would have got past him sooner, but he was a bit wary of himself in, in that particular McLaren, wasn't he? There were a few Definitely. moments where he was getting on the brakes very early and especially mm. when he was sort of coming if he was making a pass late on sort of that front straight, he was getting onto the brakes quite early and I think that gave Joe a bit of breathing room a few times, but he, he made it past eventually and he's got a good form yeah. and he's picked up this form. So if we do get the hypothetical Pierre Gasly tactical torpedo, Norris comes out of the race and as, Dan, as Timo said, Danny Rick goes on to win. Will we have the Australian national anthem played or will we have the official Australian national anthem played, which is widely known to be John Farnham's You're the Voice? That's the real question. Well, I mean, I'm happy for a bit of Johnny Farnham any day and the the farewell tour is still going 27 <laughs> years later. So I'm here for it. I'll take the stage with him. Any Anything that needs to make that happen, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> I think a shoey to a John Farnham soundtrack would just be absolutely perfect to just oh, cap off Danny Rick's career. It'd be fantastic. Just burn the country down. Like- <laughs> There'd be nothing left when I arrive in December. Everyone would just celebrate too much. <laughs> How good. On the flip side of that, Freya, who is your spinner for the weekend? Um, my spinner is very much um, shown by the lack of notes that I have for them as I took a few throughout the um, throughout the race that I was going to talk about. And I've got quite a bit here for Russell, for Hamilton. There's lots of notes here for Perez. Ricardo's got a solid three pages few bits and pieces here for Gasly, even Magnussen. He had a tyre issue at the start. And the team for both drivers, which I have absolutely no notes on whatsoever, is Ferrari. And 
there just was nothing to say, to be honest. They were kind of no man's land um, with their race and then just all weekend seemed to be struggling for, for pace, of course. Um, uh, Charles had that issue in, in free practice as well. But, yeah, you, I just you think. Say, you say issue, he backed it into the barriers. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big issue. Very much a self-inflicted issue, let's be clear. <laughs> um, no, totally. So I just go between that and the fact that you've got two drivers who have both shown incredible <laughs> potential and skill just can't get it together on can't piece it all together on a weekend now to be fair as we mentioned earlier this is Mexico so it does throw up some surprises which I love about this track or more to the point about the location um but there was just nothing to be said and I think that's not good enough when you're Ferrari doesn't help that their turbocharger isn't set up to do altitude. I think they just knew this was going to be their one sort of joker run for the year. And they just said, I don't Sorry, care. their one joker run for the year? They'd anticipated. <laughs> at the start of this year, someone at Ferrari said, it's okay. This is our joker run. It'll be fine. And that they sort of ran with that one. Ignore the terrible Italian accent. And they just said that we'll, we'll deal with that one when we get to it. Everything else will be fine because we know the turbocharger, the exhaust setup is going to run perfectly fine at sort of regular sea levels. And they just knew Mexico wasn't going to be strong. They went into the weekend knowing they were going to be somewhat on the back foot. So it was kind of weird then to see Bottas just dominate most of Q1 and Q2 with like P3 appearances. And you're sort of going, he must just be running a different aero setup, which to be fair, I think he might have been because Ferrari were running a really high setup, but it also found it really snappy and kept the car quite low. So they couldn't even take the curbs to sort of run it on the curbs, plug for you, Timo, uh, to get a uh, sort of decent run through that sort of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 section. And that I think that was where their lack of pace came from. It was just, it was one of my sort of little technical notes. If I were to do Ted's notebook, and one of the things I jotted down. <laughs> if I also, I if I would... All, that's, that's all probably really, really fair. And you're completely right. And I think we'd, we'd heard something similar in terms of saying, you know, they have kind of written this weekend off to an extent. Um, but at the same time, um, to your point, Timo, you just go, it's, but in the context of the rest of the season, it's kind of hard to use that as an excuse, accurate or not. Um, I just. Some of those things you look need... like a genius at the start of the season when you say it, if you're expecting everything to go right, but by the time you get there, you're like, mm, I don't age well. Okay. Yeah. When you think you're going to have a race up your sleeve to play around with, um, and they, they just haven't had that. Um, so. Anyway, I thought we'd see something fun there, but we didn't. And so they're my spinners of the week. Um, yeah, I agree. Ferrari, um, I mean, before Russell pitted, he, uh, Sainz was almost 30 seconds behind Russell in P4. And they finished, Sainz just finished just under a minute behind Verstappen and Leclerc was about, I think like a minute and eight seconds or something like that, which you think you would have never thought that at the start of the year. It's just mad. Um, but I will say as well, my other spinners, Stro- well, not Stroll himself, but his strategy, because I don't really understand it because he started on the mediums. He was then the first to pit out of all the drivers on lap 18. He then went on to softs and then pitted again on lap 40 for softs again. And I just don't really 
understand why Aston Martin went for that strategy. Um, and my other one, poor man Latifi. On lap 64, he was lapped by his own teammate, Alex Albon, in 12. And he was 52 seconds behind Magnussen, who was in 19th place. He was a long way off it, which it was almost impressive how slow he was this weekend. And the stroll thing was another, I think that was an Aston Martin gambling with a weird tyre strategy. They like playing with that. We saw that last year and again this year a few times. They try and throw a different tyre strategy in there to see if it works. Latifi, pretty unexcusable, finishing two laps down. Everyone from Danny you Rick's backwards was lapped. But was, was he maybe perhaps just testing out the theory in an F1 context if slow and steady wins the race and it doing it it doesn't but he knows that and everyone else now definitely knows that so he was doing them all a big favour I don't think he was testing out an Aesop's mm. fable I, I'm can you say, say he, he wasn't I can't say I mean, for certain he wasn't he finished two, essentially two laps behind Verstappen. slow and steady slow and steady doesn't win the race didn't even score. And now points. we know for definite. But weirdly enough, though, nearly everyone as far back as Danny Rick was lapped. So that's Verstappen did a pretty insane. good job. It's insane, but also shows how how on the pace Verstappen was to have basically lapped everyone as far back as sixth, basically. Also an excellent advertisement of these new regulations. <laughs> yes, yeah. Clearly it's worked so well that basically only the top six drivers remained unlapped. And even then, Charles Leclerc was one point one minute eight seconds off the pace, which uh, one minute 30, one, one minute 30 laps. And, and for a Grand Prix that was his 100th race, you could be mistaken for thinking he was in the Alfa Romeo and he was doing that as a tribute to his 100th race. But but no, he was in a Ferrari. Nice callback there. Um, yeah, when no, what was the fastest lap? Fastest lap was 120 from George Russell, which earned you a point in the predictions, by the way. Um, it Yeah, that's not... He's only got 12 seconds in hand before Verstappen comes around and laps him, which is about another six laps or so at the pace those two were lap- circulating. So, yeah, Charles Leclerc nearly lapped in a Ferrari is not what you'd expect to see. So, poor performance from Ferrari there. Um, I'll give my spinner now because I feel Timo's got a lot to add to his. So, I'll quickly rattle through mine, which is Al. Uh, Fernando Alonso yeah just sort of a bit a bit of a dud race for him uh, he did get classified because he'd done 75% of the race distance but it didn't earn him any points retired on lap 63 with his engine blowing up which is like his 6th or 5th or 6th this year yeah a little bit of a tirade for lack of a better word afterwards saying that at least within the 100 years it was both cars going kaput and now it's just his yeah he seems to have watched that TikTok which was suggesting that Alfa Romeo were purposely scuffering Antonio Giovinazzi and seems to think that that's happening to him now which is very main character Alonso energy but weird anyway I kind of echo you with my spinner and Alpine just because it's 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 really weird this fight for P4 in the championship between them and McLaren with how close it is you expect them to be going hammer to tongs with each other every race because you just see how they keep swapping back and forth on that but then you see yet another retirement engine related for Alonso you just had that in Singapore which okay maybe an older engine but still that's it just makes this even worse because you know this is probably not an older engine this time around um or whatever issue there is there, just it it doesn't look good for them. 
Um, and Ocon was just kind of nowhere. He did all right. But again, from what we've been coming to expect of him and that car for throughout this year, especially when you've got Daniel Ricciardo going absolutely stonkingly quick um, towards the end, he got a 10 plus second lead on him, for Christ's sake. We mentioned this, but like that's on like the team you're battling for, for P4 and the Constructors. You kind of would have hoped for maybe a bit more of a fight there. Maybe there were some factors that I'm forgetting here or whatever, but you still would expect a little bit more from that. So that is why Alpine as a collective are my spinner and also why Jesse, you are in my spinners category as well for this week, because it's related to our predictions. You had so much belief in them after last week. Ocon for P2 and fastest lap. And Alonso was probably going to do fairly well as a result of that as well. Actually, Alonso was even going to be in the race because he's going to be replaced by Oscar Piastri, according to you. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I made so many drug-related gifts, jokes on your part last week for trying to excuse why you're making these predictions, but I genuinely am just thinking we need to have an intervention at this point. All I'm saying is it didn't actually cost me anything in the overall standings with the predictions, which I know we'll get to in a minute. But It's, it's a shame we don't take points off, really, because that would have had a detrimental impact on you then. Yeah, it is a shame, but oh well, too bad. We've also got a point this week. It's pretty much breaking even. Um, I did have another point I was going to put in here and I've completely forgotten what it was. I can't think what for life me it is. Um, potentially a point relating to Ellie May having a Fernando Alonso cap and it really being a sort of sign of bad luck through the second half of this season. Um, you two buying merchandise for people is not good. <laughs> no, because uh, during the week, my Danny Rick bucket hat turned up. So <laughs> You sacrificed Alonso for Ocado and we accept that because we would prefer that. So thank you for yeah. that. No, that's it. The Danny Rick bucket has reminded me. Um, <laughs> did anyone see when Danny Rick was overtaking Esteban Ocon? He did like a little finger gun and sort of shot out the back of that was Ocon's. Was that Lando? Yeah. No, it was it Ricardo. Was, it was Ricardo. I saw saw Lando, hammering along and then just sort of goes, and then overtakes. I was like, this is the Danny Rick we want back. I'm like, yeah, if we have more of this, I'm happy for him to hang around. So it's almost sad we're sort of seeing this. more of... insult to injury for Ocon and Alpine there, though. Yeah. <laughs> Ricardo is have... the one doing it to you after the year he's had. Yeah, especially having been your teammate at that team and he's sort of now moved on, rocketing past you with a 10-second penalty and is now leaving the sport and just sort of going, yeah. That's probably what he was hoping to do, race one for McLaren. <laughs> so yeah. He's taken this long to do that. Unfortunate for him. We'll move on to constructors and drivers countdown, which these days we do have to add the sort of precursor of accurate at the time of recording, because obviously after Texas, they changed. Um, there hasn't really been a change in any of the stru- the uh, standings for constructors and not really a change at all in the drivers. So what I want to do is something a little bit different, open this up for a bit of conversation, of course, how we think the final two races are going to impact the standings, if at all. So bit off the fly but does anyone think they want to throw in and I mean feel free to jump in and call me crazy but I think you're crazy Verstappen might have won this world championship okay everything bar first place Checo's gonna get second second, yeah and early May and I will make the universe implode by agreeing on yet another thing 
I think it's it definitely going to be a Checo second place. But the one thing I'm interested in at the moment is there's a lot of fights, especially constructors-wise, going on down the field. With drivers, everyone's a bit either spread out or unlikely to score points. They're going to sort of shuffle things around. But with constructors, it does seem to be sort of continually rumbling on or you have teams sitting within two, three points of each other, which means that a, a P9 or a P8 finish changes things dramatically. I've got to think that Alpha Tower is going to beat Haas just because Haas just... <laughs> But yeah, where's Alpha Towering been the past few races? I know, but it's still Hess, and yeah, I just think that if the two of them, you still think as terribly as Alpha Towering been doing, they still got to get. They only have to get like three points to. I mean, they're more or less even anyway, but they only have to get a smattering of points. So it's not like we're expecting a top five finish from either one of them. They just need to finish in the points, which is more than Hess can do. I don't count the Americans out at the bottom of the hour. I mean, look at every... I'm going to count the Americans out at the bottom of the hour and then hopefully we get something interesting to happen. I mean, look at how that paid out in World War Two. <laughs> That's not the comparison we need here, Jesse. I thought it was an interesting comparison. Anyway, uh, we'll shuffle on quickly from that. Obviously, drivers-wise, there hasn't really been a change apart from at the top. We've already mentioned Hamilton jumping sides while Perez overtakes Leclerc for a five-point lead in second place. Um, interestingly enough, though, 12th place, Danny Rick is now within one point of Sebastian Vettel. So there is possibly a fight going for 12th place in the driver's standings, which is not Exactly where those two drivers wanted to be. Yeah, it's not where you'd expect Daniel Ricciardo and Sebastian Vettel to be fighting out for a championship place, but... Ho hum, we move on to our prediction. Take Bottas out. This is true. He does. Are they close enough to do that? Mm, points wise, I don't. That's a good, very good question, anyway. I don't know. Let's see. Um, bum, 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 I've got to scroll a long way down the list. I also think Aston Martin might pip Alfa Romeo. They're Bottas. quite close as well, aren't they? Yeah, mm. Bottas 47 points, Vettel 36, Ricardo 35. So it's Doable gonna... if Bottas keeps doing what he's been doing. Yeah, if Bottas continues to score no points and we get either a good race from Ricardo or Vettel where they score 10 points, what's that, P6? That's not... My Ricardo win prediction can make that happen. Yeah, it could do. Um, Constructors-wise, you were saying... Uh, Aston Martin and Alfa Romeo Aston Martin Aston Martin Alfa Romeo currently sat on 49.53 points so that could swap as well yeah I think it only takes sort of Stroll and Vettel to be both in the points which I think is more likely than Alfa Romeo the two Alfa Romeos being in both the points at the Mm. minute because I think I've said it's a weird one (laughs) well I think Alfa Romeo got all their points at the start, whilst Aston Martin have slowly got better. It, this does fit the growing theory yeah. of basically Alfa Romeo were really good and then just sort of didn't develop, whereas Aston Martin sort of developed up to it and might still have room to just inch it. It's a sound theory and it is playing out to be true, so credit where it's due, which isn't something we say often on this podcast. Anyway, we'll shuffle into properly the predictions review, which uh, one point each this week. Timo and I for the obvious prediction of Verstappen on pole and Ellie May gaining a point for George Russell, fastest lap, hence the reason why. It was a shocking week for predictions for all of us. It was not a good week. We didn't do ourselves any favours either. You could hardly say especially for me when I scored exactly the same as you did. Yes, but at least I lost for better reasons. A loss is still a loss. It doesn't matter if you win or lose by a mile. You're still winning and or losing by said mile. 
Notice how Ellie Mae is just being confident and quiet. Losing a championship by a few points is not as bad as being decimated by Max Verstappen this year. A loss is a loss, sure. But, you know, different degrees of it. Yes, but we're only playing for uh, tops. I think no, no one's even got close to 20 points yet in this. Let's see, where are we at? Uh, Ellie May, not over that? 20. Uh, oh, no, Ellie May's at 25. Timo's at 20. I'm at 19. So we're not exactly... Oh, so just you really again. Another shot in the foot of yourself there. We're not exactly playing for big money. So a point here or there does mean quite a lot. That's uh, one... 25 points. That's a win in the championship race. So... <laughs> Jesse, would you like a hand up from that hole you appear to be digging ever deeper? Why did we let her into the podcast late if this is how she's going to treat us? Um, <laughs> she was doing a Red Bull. We should have known. Anyway, we'll move on from me constantly digging a hole for myself with regards to predictions where I seem to be some sort of section at this point. It, yeah, honestly uh, we'll move on to the fantasy F1 review which again not a strong week for me to be fair uh, 7th and 16th uh, one team hampered by Alonso retiring the other one just by an over-reliance on Ferrari to do well um, I, I was hampered by Alonso and Yuki getting nerfed out of the race ooh yeah that would explain you why only two retirements and guess who chooses them <laughs> Yeah, the podcast team came home 10th and on the curbs, your little plug for yourself there, came home 19th. Not good. Top three scorers, weirdly enough, played mega drivers on Verstappen or Perez. One person playing it on Perez, which was interesting. So uh, to do it for Max. Yeah. Um, Alex H got both of his into the top three with Alan G romping home with 269 points. So very nice for them. In the full standings, I've now dropped a third, over 100 points off the lead. Alex H leads after a good race. Alan G jumps me for P2. So it's Jaffa Cakes in P3, BRT Yamaha P5 behind Consult Your GP. And the podcast team sits in P17 with Timo P20. Do better. I don't think I can. No, I don't think you can at this point. <laughs> I'm fully planning on changing my team twice now. So into Abu Dhabi, I'm going to have Latifi, Vettel, Ricardo, and Nick and see who I can buy with the rest of it just because I can't choose them next year. You, you, you are, are essentially Latifi. He is. In this he is. It's fantasy a, review. Comes close I to the top 10 on uh, occasions. but I do like maple syrup as well, so we're basically the same person. Essentially, if you're changing teams at this point, you're a bit like the band on the Titanic, just playing as you go down. I'm going to change them for Brazil and then change it again for Abu Dhabi. I'm not going to stick with that for two races. I'm going to just, I'll probably keep Mercedes as a constructor, but everyone else will change. Shocking. Anyway, um, I've got a note here that says podcast secret center of draw, which was just a more of a note to remind me to set this up to do this for our future episodes. So, uh, little fun teaser there for anyone listening that uh, that's still to come with all sorts of Why would of you bother including it in the podcast? <laughs> because it's a note and then when I come to edit this tomorrow it will be a note for me again tomorrow to set it up and do it. So Just it's like a, a reminder for you for next week on your phone. But I want to do it tomorrow so it's done in enough time so everyone has a chance to go and buy things and post them or give them to each other at the end of season. Look, the logic adds up. It's in the up. episode itself though so you can cut that bit out and save time. Yeah, but it's funny because people like to know what all the arguing that goes on between you and I. Anyway. So that is all we have got time for on this week's episode where we review the Mexican Grand Prix. So Freya, thank you for being here today. If people want to see or hear more of you and your F1 thoughts in the future and any other motorsport, because you do quite a bit, not just in F1, where can people find you? Yeah, thanks for that. So 
Uh, each week you'll find us over on Lakeside Drive podcast, um, which is hosted by um, a couple of our Australian mates um, and, and me as well. Um, and I host Freya's Free Practice Fridays, although the name seems to change on a weekly basis. So you're best to go and look for Lakeside Drive podcast. And we have a few different episodes. So depending on what it is that you're looking for when it comes to Formula One thoughts, you'll find something over there. Um, we also host um, with uh, Michael Michael Laminato and James Baldwin were the hosts of the official Extreme E podcast, which is called Extreme E Off Track. Um, and that's been just so exciting as um, a new kind of racing category to see what off-road electric racing looks like. Um, we've got Absolutely some epic drivers who we get to hear. It's so great, isn't it? Like it's so, it's so one of my favorite things. I know we we're here to talk about Formula One, but one of my favorite <laughs> things of that race is that you get always that that racing series is that you get these, you know, absolute legends of motorsport, you know, Carlos Sainz Senior, um, Sebastian Loeb, um, Nasser Alatia, um, absolute, you know, legends racing up against rookies going out for the first time, Hedda Husos, for example. Mm. And it's just amazing as a sport. And of course, on that note, you know, we have the the gender equality um, kind of uh, messaging there as well with male and female driver. driver. And then of course, um, the, the climate change awareness, which is something which I'm quite passionate about too. So it's just a great racing series. It's been so awesome to see how far they've come in just a couple of seasons as well in terms of, you know, adding a broadcast this year and everything else. Laura Winter does a phenomenal job um, with that. So you can go and listen to that. And we also do some other projects um, when it comes to motorsport and motorsport projects. So we've done a series with McLaren Applied, um, which is called Inside McLaren Applied. Um, we went and interviewed um, some of their employees um, and we did a fantastic episode, which was a panel discussion with several of their uh, female employees talking about women in engineering and that type of thing. So not just about kind of sport and technology, but also just about um, women in STEM as well. Um, and there's even a story there of, of one of their um, heads of department meeting the queen which is now I'm sure a very dearly held memory for her so um, some incredible stories that we get to hear from um, people who are all passionate about motorsport and working in the industry but you can find me over on Instagram I think my what do you call it handle I'm terrible I think so yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's literally my first name and last name so Freya.Brolsma um, or anywhere else on the usual socials and say so I binge listened to McLaren Applied when I found that, and Jesse, I'm surprised if you haven't listened to it yet because that seems like it'd be right up your alley too with behind the scenes stuff. And like you say, it's it's that kind of area of motorsport where you don't really get to see a lot behind, or you don't get to see a lot of that generally on screen or off screen in podcast form or not. So it's nice to peek behind that curtain, and you get all these great stories, and you find all these details that you probably wanted to know about but didn't know you wanted to know about until you heard it. Yeah, well, I've got a double commute plus the London to Brighton this weekend, so I'll uh, definitely chuck it on the playlist for then and uh, enjoy a bit more techie stuff because I do love filling up. You'll have your Australian accent down pat in no time. (laughs) (laughs) I'll sound like a natural when I arrive in December. Jesse Billington, where can people find you if they would like to see more of you around the place? 
if they would like to find more of me, uh, you can find me across the internet on Instagram and Twitter mostly. Or if you'd like to find uh, evidence of me existing in a physical nature, you can find my writings and pictures in the Classic Car Weekly. Coming up, I've got the London to Brighton run, so that'll be good fun. Watching pre-1905 cars coming across the line at Madeira Drive on a lovely sunny November afternoon. And uh, after that, I've also got the Classic Motor Show at the NEC in Birmingham, where I'll be chasing down the likes of Alex Kirsten, Richard Hammond and Johnny Smith for autographs, interviews and press related stuff. Maybe even a job, who knows. As for myself, you can find me over on Is It Fast where I have a lovely brand new IndyCar article apps. You can also find me over on On The Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, which if you're not watching that sport, you really got to do it because it is just brilliantly nuts, as well as Paddock Sorority and Instagram. All of that will be in the description, obviously, because there's too much of that for me to expect you all to remember that. Ellie May, where can people find you in the meantime? You can find me on our Instagram page where I write my key takeaways and our TikTok account. That is definitely it from us then. And we will see you all again very soon for a bonus news episode for the non-F1 motorsport related news and for the F3 triple header review that we decided to delay just because we wanted to let it breathe and it deserved its own space. Well, don't, it's don't, Formula 3 and it's lovely like that. Don't like the listeners. It's because I didn't get around to editing it in time, so I had to sort of palm it off to you, didn't I? Let's not lie to the people at all and say you edited it all because I edited all of that. Exactly. But I've edited this one, so it's all fine. Everything's back to normal. We'll see you in Brazil. Goodbye.